morning, everybody. Happy Saturday. I just want y'all to know, you know, y'all know I'm Dr. Lauren Piz, this house called Free Grain. Ronnie and I are breaking up because I will say that I was fully expecting some ignorant fooling shenanigans that he would beat me up, but he didn't. But I know he's going to because that's what he does. He takes cheap shots. He takes cheap shots. I figured he was going to like secretly bring a 49ers fan into the show or some <laughs> craziness like this, but he actually did one worse. He is sitting here today and he's going to introduce them. Well, we got an Eagles fan today, an Eagles fan. Somebody that just has full bottles of pink Himalayan sea salt rocks and iodized salt and all this foolishness. So they just, I'm fully prepared because I have on my big girl panties today. I'm just fully prepared for the shots that they're going to take while we're having some amazing discussion today. This is House Talk pregame, folks. Welcome back. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, well thank you for that uh, wonderful uh, intro, uh, Dr. Pitts. Um, like I like I said in the uh, pre-show, um, like the wise uh, poet Young Jeezy said, you know, what's understood does not have to be explained. Um, what I will say, though, is that this past Sunday night, probably foreshadowed a lot of what it might look like mid-January. But, you know, I'm no prophet, but, you know, history does sometimes repeat itself. But it's all good. That's why they have um, memes with middle fingers, y'all. That's all I'm going to say about that. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> hey, look, some moments captured in, captured in time, you know, are just timeless. You know, they, they are just wonderful things that we can always reflect upon. And they bring us back to a certain memory, a certain time in our life where we had so much joy, enthusiasm, all that good stuff. Um, so with that being said, uh, let the strays fly today. Um, this is their homecoming game today, <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> Welcome back to House Talk Pregame, episode 135. We got a really, really special guest with us uh, today, Mr. David Kitchen. We're going to be introducing him and bringing him on in a few seconds. We got a wonderful topic lined up for you all today. Today's topic is called Built, Not Born, mm. you know, with the right habits. You know, it's likely that everyone can live a healthy, fit life regardless of the genes they were born with. An athlete's ability isn't written in their genes, it's written in their daily routine. The hard part is starting that routine and sticking to it, though. So we brought in Mr. David Kitchen today to talk to us about routine, habits, but also how you can, like I said, how we can talk about these habits on the field and off the field and post-career. So we got a really great topic lined up today. We're going to get into that. Like Dr. Pitts mentioned, um, I do want to take a few moments real quick to just shout out my uh, my young boys at Virginia State University. They are currently 6-0, and ranked 24th in the country right now in the Division II polls. Um, they just came off an absolute dragging of those little chihuahuas over at Bowie State. Um, I mean, just an absolute shellacking, like 44-16 during Bowie State's homecoming. We walk in your trap, we take over your trap, make it our homecoming, all that good stuff, and bring the homecoming vibes back here today. Unfortunately, though, it is a very uh, gloomy 61 degrees and pouring down rain today. So uh, I will not be attending the homecoming game because I don't play football no more. So I don't need to be in the rain. Um, I'm good on that. I, I, I did my fair share standing in the rain as a, a watcher, coach, player, all that good stuff. I'm good today. Um, but they're playing Bluefield State today at two o'clock. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. I think this is the first time they've played Bluefield State before. Um, and I will say this. Um, so internally, um, you know, um, I have a, a group chat with a lot of my teammates from when I played, which I think is absolutely phenomenal because, you know, being able to, you know, stay in contact with them, you know, like we do, we talk every day. Like there's not a day in the last five years since we've had this group chat that we haven't talked with each other. Um, and so one of our teammates is a coach at Virginia State. Um, and so before the season, he was saying how, yo, this might be the uh, greatest Virginia State team to ever walk on campus. Now, being a member of the uh, 2013 and 2014 championship teams at Virginia State, you know, I'm a little biased. Um, we were the first nationally ranked team in Virginia State history. Uh, we were the uh, only football team in Virginia State history to make it to the second round of the playoffs. Uh, we're the only Virginia State team to win a playoff game. Um, so I might just be a little biased. However, I will say, They've looked really phenomenal this year. They look loaded. They look stacked. 
offense, defense. Uh, they got a couple of players who probably will might be on some uh, NFL training camp rosters next season. Nice. Um, so it's looking really good. Um, I'm, I'm rooting for them. I hope they can finish the season strong. Uh, they got, I think, maybe one more tough game in the regular season against Union. It just really depends on what Union going to bring out there. Um, but Virginia State's doing the darn thing. They're the uh, rank, they're the number two ranked HBCU team for Division Two, number four overall out of all HBCUs. Um, so they're doing it. They're doing it. So shout out to the Trojans on the hill over there. Um, let's get this game today and let's keep this train rolling. So coach finally got his rhythm. Right, finally got his rhythm. Shout out to Coach Frazier. We had him on the yeah. show last season. Um, he he's doing it big. I I know it, it was maybe a little heart wrenching for him last week to beat up on his alma mater like that. Um, <laughs> Probably. But hey, you know, it's all good. It's all good. Um, my last thing I had real quick, too, and I wanted y'all's opinion on this because um, me and Dr. Piss was talking about this earlier. And David, we would love your opinion on this. Um, I just have a question for the people out there listening today. Why is California the only state where you can win the lottery at? I need somebody to answer that for me. $1.4 billion to one ticket winner. How the I think the last three times it's been over a billion dollars, it's been somebody in California mm -hmm. to win. Why? Why? Yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm mad about it. There's no point in playing the lottery no more. Because unless I'm gonna fly to California, get a ticket in California, and see if it wins, there's no <laughs> point in me playing the lottery no more. Um, so Whoever won it, if you're out there listening to me complain right now about you being lucky because you live in California, um, look, I don't need that. <laughs> I, hey, look, I don't need the one billion. I take the point four part of it. I'm good with that. <laughs> hey, after after taxes, they ain't gonna have much left. Like right, out in California, <laughs> you know it's crazy. I have this I have this debate with people all the time about should you take the one time payment or should you take the mm -hmm. thirty year payments? And everybody always says, oh no, I'm gonna get all my money at one time. Yes, you will get significantly less with one time. However, if you take the 30-year payments, you get significantly more of that money back. Mm -hmm. If I if I blow through 20 plus million dollars a year as just a regular individual, I you don't need, need it to begin with. Yeah. You know? Go with the so, annuity and, and use it as generational wealth and rock out and, and, and invest it so that the annuity grows and leads to more generational wealth. Right. Yeah. But, you know, hey, shout out to that lucky person out yeah. there. You know, um, that was a dollar spent well, I guess, you know, whatever, you know, kudos yeah. to you for being lucky, for being in California, whatever. Uh, <laughs> anyways, Dr. Pitts, any any news, mental health tips of the week you got before we get started? No. Any 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 mental health tips you want to give your beloved Cowboys? I'm pretty sure they could use a pick me up this week. You know, I feel like, and I don't, you know, obviously because I'm not working with them yet. Um, it just they just they've looked flat to me the past couple of weeks. They've come out really, 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 really flat. And I can't help but to think that a big part of that is mental. It's not a lack of talent. It's not. It is not a lack of talent. And I don't want to get, you know, go off on a tangent. Y'all know how I feel. I know everybody has their opinions about Dak and all of that. But I also know this. And Ronnie, you've said this over and over and over again, as many guests on our, our um, show have. Football is a team sport. And yes, the QB, you talk about it all the time, regardless of who it is or what team it is, Josh Allen, you know, whoever it is, all the pressure is always going to come on the quarterback. But we have not looked good on both sides of the ball. And there's, there's a holistic culpability for that. You talk about all the time and the beatdowns that y'all have given your teammates in the locker room when they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And, but there's, we've also talked about the coach player relationship and what that looks like. And I absolutely positively love Dan Quinn. I do, but we did absolutely nothing. We did nothing, zero, bunch of goose eggs to stop them. We had nothing for them, nothing. My mom was texting me saying, I am, cause she's a Cowboys fan too. She was like, mm, I can't take this anymore. She was like, literally, it was 
I mean, it was, it reminded me the way I described it to my Eagles clients is because I, you know, I can take the best of harassment. It was like a dog dragging its blanket <laughs> up and down, just up and down. It was, it, you, the, like you see in the cartoons, the dog with the dirty blue blanket and he's just running back and forth in front of the house. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I felt like we were that dirty blue blanket and we were just being drugged up and down the field, up and down the field, up and down the field. Yes, Dak has to take responsibility and accountability for what his miscues and stuff are, but it has to be a tightening on both sides of the ball. And when you come out looking that flat, I'm like, where's the fire? Where's where's the passion? Where's the, like, it just, they just looked defeated. They just, and, I, and I'm like, what the heck, man? It's like, when I think about it, we talk a lot of times about, but though the Detroit Lions are balling out right now. Right. Um, but we've talked about some of those, some of the worst teams in the league that have just played horribly and how they still come out every single solitary game on fire. Mm-hmm. I'm not seeing that fire. And I, and I don't, I don't know um, what that is. So I feel like, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's a come to Jesus or a, 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 a group mental health session. I don't know. but something something's going on here that it because it's not talent it's not a lack of talent it's it's here maybe maybe they should change the location of of their football team maybe they should just move from dallas maybe just they've been in dallas too long it's just something about dallas like you know just things don't always just come to fruition in dallas it could be that um but I think it's deeper than that, but I'm not going to say it on the air because I don't want to disrupt any chances that I might have to work with the team in the future. Because I got an opinion, but I'm not going to publicly say it. So I, my last I, thing, I my, my, my last thing on the Cowboys and 49ers game is for all my linemen out there. If you mm-hmm. wanted to watch a master class on being mm-hmm. a left tackle, please mm-hmm. go watch Trent Williams' highlights from that game. Because mm-hmm. in all in all fairness, Michael mm-hmm. Parsons is an absolute beast. Don't mm-hmm. get me shut him down. And you and you've heard me. I'm like I'm, I can be objective. Like I don't have no gripe with the players. It's the mm-hmm. fans that I always got to get a hard time on. Mm-hmm. But Michael Parsons is a beast. Trent Williams neutralized him. Yeah, I mean they shut like, him Michael down. Parsons was absolutely a non-factor. Every time he lined up on that side against Trent, I'm just like, mm-hmm. why do they keep doing that? Send mm-hmm. his over to the right side make mm-hmm. him play against the right tackle the whole game or the center yep. or the guard stop sending him to that side that is an automatic win for trent every single time that man is a first ballot hall of fame left tackle yeah. master class on playing offensive line i mean absolutely they also master. on that ronnie they also double and triple teamed cd lamb the whole game too they he they they couldn't they had nothing for that he like they they had our ticket they they just they had our card and it was there was nothing and what i don't understand is why i'm like did y'all thought they was just gonna let you come in you didn't think that they was gonna do that you didn't think that they were like oh so let's it's like you can't blame it on on uh council Moore anymore you you now you got um i'm throwing a blank because it get on my nerves so bad I don't even know who the OC is. Hey, McCarthy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think McCarthy's name. You can't bl- like anyway, moving right along. Go ahead. We got some great conversation. I don't want to, I don't need this aggravation. I'm already not sleeping. <laughs> well, so we're gonna bring David in. So just give y'all a little background on who David is. So David is the founder of Edge Leadership Academy, which is a consulting speaking business aimed at arming as many people as possible with the skills and mindset necessary for leadership. Prior to uh, the Edge Leadership Academy, David spent 10 years as a college strength and conditioning coach, which included him being the youngest head strength coach in all of the NCAA at the tender age of 24 years old in the Division I men's basketball program at Georgia Southern University and for college football at UNLV. However, during the height of the pandemic, when David was offered a, a contract extension, he chose to leap out on faith, take a step in his direction, and open up Edge uh, Leadership Academy, and also is pursuing his PhD in psychology. So, David, David, welcome to the show, man. How are you this morning? Man, I appreciate y'all having me. This is this is gonna be fun, man. This football talk. I'm sitting here listening 
And uh, it's just already got the juices flowing, bro. I, I love that you guys call it pregame too. I'm sitting here, I'm like, man, I might have to go over to my own homecoming this weekend. You know, we got so I got to shout out my alma mater real quick. You did, okay, yes, you did sir. your love. I, I got to give them a little love, man. The boys down in uh, Seelands Grove, Pennsylvania at Susquehanna University, Division Three. Uh, we're okay. rocking, man. They, yeah, they dog walked, uh, dog walked the, a team last week, 69 nothing. Uh, so we're out here, man. Top 10 in the nation. We're, we're rolling. So oh, I got to show okay. a little love to them. They got homecoming today. It's raining here, too, so I will not be in attendance. Uh, but you got me jacked up. I might I might dig out the poncho and get myself over there on the sidelines, man. It's, hey, it's, it's, it's ball time. So tell us a little bit. Of that. Tell us about your playing career, man. Yeah, man. So uh, I'm kind of the classic Friday night light sob story, right? So um, I was very fortunate to play at a high school uh, that has produced Gatorade Players of the Year, um, national championships, state championships, et cetera. It's basically – uh, we'll put it this way. You don't get a letterman's jacket unless you win a, a state a state playoff game. Um, you don't even get one. And you don't get a signing day, you know, event unless you sign division one. So it, it's like that kind of place. Like it's it's state championship or bust. Um, and right. so I was very fortunate to be a good player on a great team. So shout out to my teammates for letting me ride those coattails. Um, you know, so going into my junior year, um, I was I was highly recruited. Uh, small division one schools had a lot of looks from, you know, at that time it was one double a FCS um, thought that that's where I was going to end up playing defensive line, offensive line. One of the two, I didn't know which, uh, and then getting ready for my senior year, I blew my knee. So I blew my knee about two weeks before the season started, three weeks before the season started. Um, and I came from a single parent household. So the only way I was going to college was if I was getting ball to get me there, you know? And so uh, decided to play against med medical advice. So put the surgery off until after the season and basically was not the same player at all, which we can all imagine. I mean, you have an offensive line with one bump, with one bump wheel, you're not going to be the same guy. Right. Um, and so, you know, week by week, the offers dried up and I, I could see, and it, it, you know, looking back now, I could see the toll it took on me mentally because I was pressing so hard, right? Because each week it was like less coaches were returning my calls. And then it was like, nobody's calling me. And so all of a sudden I'm sitting here and I'm out in the cold and I'm like, man, what happened? You know, what, what, what went on here? Like I, I went from being on top of the world to, I, I can't even get some, somebody. I mean, there's a division two university. that was right down the road for me. They're 20 minutes from my house. Dude wouldn't even return my call. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. Right. So um, flash forward, you know, end of my senior year, got the opportunity to play in an all-star game. And who would become my college coach was actually in the stands because his son was on the other team. Um, and so he saw me play. He had seen me play before. He finally reached out and said, hey, listen, we didn't think we had a shot at you, you know, obviously, because you were, we thought you were going to go somewhere bigger. Um, but we'd love to have you on campus. Check it out. Um, and so I went down to Susquehanna University with, with my best friend at the time. Um, and we both just fell in love, man. It was like, this is, this is where we need to be. You know, this is the university for us. Um, so we went to school there and, you know, honestly, man, I wasn't emotionally mature enough to handle it. Uh, like I said, growing up in a, in a single parent household, um, I had all the responsibility of helping to raise my brother, being the man of the house, all this stuff. So I think that put my, my ego in check because I always had somebody watching me. Right. And so it tempered a lot of those childish and egotistical impulses and behaviors that a lot of kids would have had at, you know, 13 to 18 years old. I didn't get a chance to have those because I had to act like a grown up, mm -hmm. And now they put me on college campus. You're this highly recruited dude, you know, that's not supposed to be here. And all of a sudden, man, all that childishness came out. All of it came out. And I, I completely um, was a nightmare off the field. And I can say that objectively now, after 10 years of coaching, man, I was a nightmare. And uh, so throughout my college career, man, I came in as the number one recruit in my class, not even close. Um, me, and my, me and my roommate were the top two. And I ended up not starting or taking a single snap until my sophomore year. Um, and then I didn't start a single game my entire college career. So it was, uh, it, it was hard. It was difficult. It was a lot of growing up. I ended up blowing my knee two more times. Um, ended up getting medically disqualified after my junior season. And it, looking back now, it was the most important thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to disconnect from the identity of Kitch as the football player and become David as the man and figure out who am I as a human. Um, because up to that point, 
all I identified was, was I'm Kitra, I play football, right? Like that's who I was. And, and so it was the most important thing I ever had. So that, that's my playing career in a, uh, in a nutshell. It's basically, it, it would have started out like a great movie and then ended like a, like a sad one, you know? So I, I think if you, if you really look at my playing career again, it's one of those things that I think if I didn't have that time away from the game, I never would have became the coach or the man that I am today. Like, I think I needed, I needed football to be taken away from me. Man, that's um, Dr. Piss was joking uh, that we look like we could be brothers or twins at the uh, beginning, but uh, hell, I mean, just our, the, the football stories from high school to college. Um, I didn't suffer my injuries till I got to college, but um, just how it kind of, you know, for me, I was one of the top recruits from my class and I, I played, you know, all my, I played three years. My first year I broke my foot. Um, but the last three years I played, I played through four knee surgeries in two seasons. And um, kind of like you, you know, um, if you, from the first 22 years of my life, if you ask me who I was, I was running the football player that, and that's all it was. This all I knew, all I thought I was good at the whole nine yards. Um, and for it to kind of like, you know, just, and my face just kind of blow up and know that this is where it stops at. Um, yeah, man, that's, that's, that's powerful, man. Um, so in that transition coming out of college, coming into the real world, um, how was that adjustment? What were some of the things that you had to battle through and what were some of the challenges you experienced as you went from Kitsch to David? Man, it, it was tough. It, it was really tough because I had two years, well, a year and a half left of, of college after football, right? So I had to figure it out. And I lived with all football players. I lived in a house of, of six football players, you know, and I was the only one that wasn't playing anymore. And so I really had to find myself. And I don't think I really did until after school. Like um, there was a lot of times, like I didn't go. And it's something I, I still regret to this day, but like one of my best friends uh, who was one of my roommates was a two-time All-American. And I didn't go to either of the ceremonies because I couldn't be around the game. Like I just, I didn't go to a single game for the rest of my college career. Um, and so I had a lot of soul searching to do. Right. And so I graduate with a business degree and, you know, at that point I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? You know? And, and so obviously as, as most, you know, young kids and, and kids that came up in a, in a, a poor house, I looked mm -hmm. and said, I want to make some bread. Like I'm ready to put some money in my pocket. And so I got into tech sales and I got into, uh, I was selling cloud solutions, um, and it systems to medium sized, small, medium sized businesses in Pennsylvania. So, and I was good at it, man. I was, I was making money. And I had a, a coach from high school that had now gotten an opportunity to become a head coach somewhere. And he called me and he said, hey, would you come and just run the weight room for us? And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So I'm doing that on the side and uh, making this money, you know, selling IT systems. I'm shirt and tied up, the whole deal. And right before the season started, his offensive and defensive line coach quit. And so he said, you know, Kitch, would you stay on and, and coach on the field too? I'm like, man, I, I'm making all this money over here. You know, I love doing what I'm doing in the weight room, but like, I, I don't know. And he's like, nah, man, I need you right now. So I was like, all right. So I stay on, I coach, and it was like, man, it was like a drug. Like, it was like, nah, this is where I need to be. Like, like I love this game. I love these kids. I love this impact that I'm having. Like, this is what I want to do. And um, so there, there was a lot of, of soul searching through that time, you know, and, and, Kind of the breaking point came, I remember being at our Christmas, our office Christmas party and, you know, everybody in, in that industry is making money. And so they show up, you know, they're suited and booted. Everybody's looking good, drinking, you know, drinking high class stuff and enjoying themselves, smoking cigars. And I remember looking around the room and I'm just like, man, this is not who I want to be. Like, this is, this isn't it. You know, even though I'm making this money, like this is not it. And so I walked outside and it's freezing cold and, and I'm like, sitting out there for a minute. Like I didn't want to go back in. And, I, and that was when I made the decision. I was like, nah, I'm done. I'm going to coach. Um, and so got the opportunity, you know, to, to talk to my family and say, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go coach. And I don't know how, I don't know what it's going to look like, but, but I'm doing it, you know? And so I wrote a letter uh, to every division one school on the East coast. And I said, I will quit my job and come work for you for free if you mentor me and teach me how to be a strength and conditioning coach. Now, mind you, I had a business degree, so I didn't even know if I could pass the certification mm -hmm. exam required. So this was a complete, you know, stepping into the unknown. Right. Right. And uh, I got an opportunity at, at Robert Morris university in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, so I quit my job. I loaded up the new Jeep. I just bought with the paycheck that I was no longer getting. <laughs> and uh, I cruised out to Pittsburgh, man. And I found a one bedroom apartment it was an old high school. 
and they turned them into one bedroom apartments and they only took cash for rent. So you can imagine type of neighborhood I was in. Right. And uh, so I lived in there, man. I had a, I had a, a little plastic tote. That was my coffee table. It was my TV stand. It was my study desk. And I worked, I worked, man. I, I went to work 12 hours a day in that weight room, learning, trying to be a sponge. And then at night I would study for the exam. And so I think I learned so much about myself during that time, right? Like you figure out uh, one, what it feels like to really be passionate about something again, like to really love. So I didn't love anything since I lost the game. You know, there, I, I was kind of living life on autopilot for those really three years. I was partying, I was having a good time. I was, you know what I mean? I, I had figured out the academic piece, but I didn't love it, you know? And so now I finally found something that I was passionate about again. Um, and it helped me to be around people because at, at that division one level, like you're around guys that want to be great. You're around coaches that are constantly looking for that edge. And I'm super fortunate to have one of the most phenomenal mentors um, that's still a, a really close friend to this day that showed me what it was like to be a good man as well, right? And so I was learning all these life lessons while I was coaching, man. So I, during that, that time was the most transformative time of my life. Wow. And you, you speak on being able to step out on that passion and, and really choosing yourself. And, and you know, in, in our practice of, of therapy and everything, we talk to our clients about, you know, everything that's going on around you, there will never be the time for it to be the right time for you to choose you or to step out on something that you truly believe in. Sometimes you have to just put you first and step out on that faith, step out on that passion and see what happens. You know, the worst thing that could ever happen is it does not work out. But here's what you do figure out. You figure out that you never have to spend the rest of your life wondering if it would have worked out, you know, and that right there can be a challenge. That can be a challenge for a lot of people to really step out on that faith and step out on a passion or a dream they've always had wondering, will it work out? Well, if you spend the rest of your life wondering, will it work out as opposed to actually finding out, you will never know. And so that's powerful, man. Wow. That, that's really incredible, man. It's those conversations that we have with our clients so often who are paralyzed by fear. And as you were speaking, I, I heard my son's grandmother, because she's said for years and years and years, short-term sacrifice, long-term gain. And you, as you started talking, I was like, you embody that. You embody what it means to embrace short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. And, and to both of your points, it's what I say to my clients, like, you, they were like, Dr. Pitch, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of the unknown. And I'm like, well, it's humanly impossible to know everything. So are you going to become, you know, agoraphobic and, and, and be just drowning in social anxiety and, and all of this fear that literally is paralyzing you and keeping you stuck in the discomfort, the dis-ease and the discontent of the comfort zone that truth be told you hate. You hate being there, but because it's so familiar, because it's a pain that you've been having a romantic love affair with your whole freaking life, mm -hmm. you're unwilling to punch fear and anxiety in the face, kick the hinges off the, you know, kick the door off the hinges of that uncomfortable comfort zone and go out there. And here's the catch. It's not to suggest for a moment that you're not going to experience discomfort and, and fear and, and mishaps out there beyond the, the discomfort of your comfort zone. But isn't that life? I've, I've been using this analogy all week that this 16.9 ounce water bottle represents life. It represents life. And if all you have is a four ounce capacity for the curveballs that life throws at you and you don't learn how to empty this cup, then you're going to live in paralyzed by fear. You're going to be ensnared your whole freaking life. But at some point in time, you have to say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to take a chance. And what's so crazy about it is, and I, it, it's, mind-blowing to me is that folk will scream yell hoot holler cuss and fuss and be in the streets fighting to somebody that calls them out their name to somebody that says something sideways to their man or to their woman or whatever but when it comes to fighting for themselves when it comes for fighting for their hopes their goals their dreams their aspirations they curl up in a darn ball and act like a caterpillar <laughs> you know in the middle of the fall it drives me freaking nuts because i'm like 
you'll fight for everything but yourself. You'll fight for everything but your hopes, goals, dreams, and aspirations. What's wrong with that picture? And you well, embody what it means to fight. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, it's, it's that, that capacity that you were talking about. To me, it was a, it was a perspective shift, right? And so it, it became this, this thing of like, I know I'm going to experience discomfort, fear, imposter syndrome. All these things are coming. Right. But I'm so obsessed. And I use that word very, very strictly. Like I'm so obsessed with the excitement of the person that I'm going to become on the other side of those things, that it raises my threshold to deal with those things as they're happening. Because it's like, I'm not in it for the, the immediate gratification right now. I'm in it for the person that I'm going to become. Right. Because I had to go through all those things to become the person that I am now and to be able to stand on the stages and, and do the things. Right. And so it's you start to get excited if you can reframe it and get excited for adversity and get excited for those moments like those butterflies and I still get them I was terrified so many times I tell the story like when I got the job at UNLV I was 25 or 26 I had just come off being the youngest head strength coach in the country I'm I'm feeling myself you know and, and I get this opportunity to division one school I take the job and I remember standing in the bathroom at the airport having a breakdown and just being like, what if I'm not good? All the things that we wonder, what if I'm not good enough? What if I don't make it? What if all this hype about me is not true, right? What if I can't live up to the press? Because these dudes think they're getting the youngest head strength coach in the country. These dudes think they're getting this young, you know, phenom that's coming up the ranks. Like, what if I can't do it? And then I remember thinking to myself, like, everything you want is on the other side of fear. Everything you want, it's all there, you know? And so what are you going to do? You're going to walk out of here? And just never answer anybody's calls and never explain to anyone what happened. Like, no, go get on the plane, man. Worst case scenario, you quit. You're in control. You know, so go. And, and, and it was, again, you know, every time I have those moments, it's a signal to me that it's like, no, this is it, dude. You're at the door of the next level right now. This is a good thing. You know, that's exciting. You owned it. And, and that's right. what I tell my clients. When people ask me about, you, you know, as you both can imagine, both athletically and, and, and clinically, you know, people are quick to say that we <laughs> make things sound so easy. And mm -hmm. I said, whoever said it was going to be easy? It's actually going to be hard. Right. right. But aren't you worth it? Aren't you worth doing the hard thing to prove to yourself that you can do it? And what I found is that a lot of people don't even realize that they're already winning. They're so busy dancing with these internal negative narratives that they have that they don't even realize that they actually are already winning. They have already overcome some of the greatest adversities that other people, you know, respectfully have killed themselves over. They are already thriving, but they're so busy focused on what they think they can't do that they believe their own lie. And it's like, mm, hello, you're already a winner. You're already victorious, but you're so busy entertaining the distortions that you don't even realize that you're already winning. And you have to be willing to give yourself credit. You have to be willing to own the fear. People say all the time, well, Dr. Pitts, you, you know, you, you make it sound easy and you do this and I couldn't do what you do the whole nine yards. And I say, you know how I win? And it just, hand to God, true story. This is how I win. I admit that I'm nervous. I admit that, you know what? Woo, this, this is intimidating. Look at my you look being the dumbest person in the room because you know we're taught at this level right we're taught the last thing on earth you want to be is the smartest person in the room all the time so i keep putting myself in these environments where you know obviously i'm not dumb but i'm far 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 from the smartest person in the room and i will say this is intimidating this is a little uncomfortable but you know what? I'm going to metaphorically sit at the feet of all of this knowledge, all of this power, all of this greatness, all of this excellence, all of this expertise. And, and what is it, Ronnie? You've said it time and time and time again. We all sit down and go to the bathroom the same. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. The only difference between us and them is some of them have more money than I do. Some of them may have more degrees than I do. Some of them may have more experience than I do. But at the end of the day, we all live in and breathe in the same air. 
And I'm not going to allow my distorted perception of, you know, this pedestal that I've put you on, rob me of the opportunity to have access to greatness and excellence and these amazing opportunities that God has set in my lap. Yeah, and it's 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 reframing the it's reframing the uh, the narrative, right? Like you said, it's you you've done all these things, you've gone through all these things in your life. Like to me, those are data points, right? To me, those are data points. That's that's evidence that I am who I think I am, and that I'm capable of the things that I think I'm capable of, right? And and it's I, I talk about this a lot with my coaching clients and with some of the people that I work with. Like it's not arrogance by any means because if there's evidence. And so when I look back at the trail of things behind me and I say, hey, I came from a single parent household. Statistically, I shouldn't be here. I'm a black business owner traveling the country talking to CEOs about leadership. You kidding me? Come on now. Right. So like all these things that I've done, I look at it. And again, for me, the trigger phrase is I look at that stuff and I go, I'm a bad dude. Like I really am. You know, like I really have it like that. And so does that mean that I'm not afraid of the next thing? No, it just means, hey, I've already slayed these dragons. I deserve to be in this arena. I don't know if I'm going to win, but I deserve the opportunity to compete to win. David, I wanted, I wanted you to, um, so after you got the job at UNLV, was working on a strength and conditioning coach, you mentioned that when the pandemic came about that you had this idea to want to open up Edge Leadership Academy. Take us back to COVID, what, you know, what it was like at UNLV, what your experience was like at UNLV, and kind of walk us through that transition of, of how COVID kind of, made, it sounds like maybe COVID may have sped that process up for you. So kind of walk us through that part of your life right there. Yeah, so I, I had left UNLV. Um, I was at Georgia Southern at that time. So I made the transition to, to men's basketball at that time, um, which kind of makes the story a little bit better, actually. So we, we finished the season and we're, we're playing great ball. I mean, we were hooping at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, you know, again, using my favorite term, we just had just got done dog walk in Georgia State in the conference tournament. So, you know, at the end of the day, we, we showed who, who state it was, you know, um, had the opportunity to go to March Madness, right? So NCAA tournament, the show. And we're on the bus and we're on our way to the airport in Atlanta. And we get a phone call from the athletic director. Shut it down. Bring it back to campus. COVID's happening. They shut the tournament down. And so we're like, what, bro? Like, we're a mid-major school. We just battled for this play-in spot. You know, we're playing the best ball for some of these seniors. They'll never touch a basketball again in a, in a competitive sense. You know, and so we're all sitting there like, what is going on? So I was sitting next to the head coach, and uh, we, t- we take the bus ride back to campus, and he didn't speak the whole time, which was odd. Um, and so we get to campus and I'm like, Hey coach, what do you want to do here? And he's like, nothing, go see your family. And I'm like, my family's in Pennsylvania. We're in Georgia. Like you realize that implies that I'm going to now drive back to Atlanta, get on the plane and get, get out of here. Right. And, uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, go see your family. So I get on the plane, fly to PA and I get off the plane. And I get an ESPN alert that he had taken a job at another school. So while we were on the bus, he had accepted a role at another university. And at that level, you're tied to your head coach, right? So if he leaves, you're in limbo. You got two choices now. You either wait for him to call you and say, hey, I'm going to bring you with me. Mm-hmm. Or you go to the AD and you say, hey, I want to throw my hat in the ring. Tell whoever you're bringing in that I'm willing to interview for my job, which is a humbling experience, especially considering the fact we just came off a 23, 23 win season. I had, you know, a national strength and conditioning All-American. I mean, I did everything right, right? So hypothetically, I should not be interviewing for my job this season. Right. And uh, so they bring in the new head coach. He says to me, you can interview over the summer. Your summer will be a working interview. Now, this is like the height of the pandemic. So there's not a lot of data points to go off of here because our interaction with the kids is very limited because of the pandemic. Right. And so I'm like, man, I don't know how this is going to go. Like I, I very well might get canned here. Um, and so... You know, I had had a conversation with one of our players at the end of the previous season that had had really sparked Edge Leadership Academy. Um, that's where the idea came from, was he came in my office and he was one of the best leaders that I had ever coached. And he came in my office and he said, coach, I've been the best player on every team I've ever been on. And everybody's always telling me to lead, but nobody ever taught me how. And the entrepreneur in me was like, boom, business. You know, the coach in me and, and the, the guy with the master's degree in sports psychology was like, oh, this is a problem. You know, like, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's start talking this out. And so we did. 
And it formed this idea. And I had already built leadership curriculums. I had already built leadership councils, things like that throughout my career. And so now faced with this choice, you know, in the, in the summer, I, I started to kind of put pen to paper and like, okay, what would this look like if I actually taught this curriculum, if I actually built this out, you know, et cetera. And I got to the end of the summer and the head coach, to my surprise, called me and said, hey, can we meet? I said, yeah, come in. He's like, listen, man, the kids love you. Um, we're willing to offer you a contract extension and a pay raise. And it was like the mo moments in the movies, like where everything slows down and you're just like, same thing that happened to me at the, at the office party. This isn't where I'm meant to be. Like there's something bigger. And so, you know, I said, Hey coach, with all due respect, I appreciate the offer. Can I have 24 hours? And at that level, that's a big ask, you know, that's a big ask. So he gave me the 24 hours. I went home. I Googled, how do you start an LLC? And I figured out that I could get it done. And I called my mom and my family and I said, hey, I'm done. I'm walking away. You know, it's, it's over. Um, and so that's how Edge Leadership Academy was born, man. It was, uh, it was a wild ride. Launched it, launched a consulting firm and a speaking business in the middle of a pandemic, which allowed you to not be face to face with people. So very, uh, you know, very wild time for me. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the best moves I've ever made in my career. That's dope. You're actually our, our second guest that we've had who was a former football player, former coach, and during the height of the pandemic actually opened up their own, you know, consulting agency, mental health company and stuff like that for athletes, coaches and things like that, uh, which is, I mean, just speaks to, like you said, the passion, the faith, the just not, and, and I always tell people, faith is not about knowing what the end is going to be guaranteed. It's about knowing that I'm willing to embrace the process and embrace the objectives, which help me get to that goal. And yeah, a lot of and, times, and, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. And, yeah, no, I, I just, to, to kind of further your point, like COVID made a lot of coaches realize the gravy train can end at any time, right? right. It, it opened our eyes because so for so long, right, college athletics was too big to fail. Like there was nothing that could stop the wheel. There was too many people getting rich off of it. So they weren't going to let college athletics stop. And then all of a sudden the pandemic came and it put a crunch on all these budgets and all these things. And you saw coaches getting furloughed. You guys saw people getting pay cuts. You saw staffs getting reduced. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're not recession proof. Hold on a minute. I'm putting the well-being of my future, my family, my community in the hands of 18 to 22 year old kids. And for lack of a better term, you know, rich old men um, to, to, to build my future, right? That, that doesn't make sense. That's not a winning equation. And so I think a lot of coaches during that time said, hey, how do I take control of my future? How do I at least have some sort of hand on the wheel in where this thing is going? Because it can go off the rails quick and there's no, there's no recovery plan. Right. You, you mentioned that when your, when your uh, player came to you and talked about you know, the inadequate uh, resources of how to become a leader. Um, what was, and you mentioned that up until that point, you had some uh, leadership curriculum and stuff that you had worked on in the past and things like that. Talk to us more about, you know, um, just for your perspective, why leadership means so much to you and, you know, how leadership has been so impactful on your life. And, you know, even I, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, a lot of times when we talk to people about, you know, uh, little traumas, big traumas and stuff like that, one of the traumas that I think oftentimes is overlooked is the trauma of being parentified at a very early age. You mentioned that, you know, having to become the man of your house at such an early age and things like that. And from those teenage adolescent years, you had to be something that even for you, you did not know how to be, but you figured it out and did it. How much of even that right there influenced your ability to really, you know, create this leadership academy and things like that? Ma massively, massively. Um, I'll be the first to tell you my childhood shaped a lot of, of who I am, right? Because I had to learn a lot of those lessons the hard way and, and, and make mistakes and go through them, right? And then having the opportunity to be in leadership roles through athletics. And then as a coach, like the, the curriculum that I had built was very rudimentary at that point because I, I didn't, you know, it was just secondary or tertiary even to my role as a strength and conditioning coach. It was just something else that I could bring to the table um, that would help our, our teams. And so it was, it was very rudimentary, but it just started with like some self-awareness things and then working through some of the different quote unquote soft skills, which I hate calling them that. Um, but, you know, learning to be an empathetic listener and learning to communicate better, just some of the things that, that we all know are vital to leadership, um, but a lot of young men and young women struggle with. Um, but I think for me, when I look at how my childhood impacted that, 
I had kind of this patchwork mentorship um, through my childhood, right? Because I was seeking, I was seeking leadership from the people around me and whoever I could get to that, that I felt was a strong leader. So obviously I learned, I learned to lead with love from my mother, right? That that's hands down my mom and my grandma. I learned to lead with love. And so I think that's different than a lot of young men, especially African-American men. Right. And so I learned to lead with love. The second piece was I had all these coaches that were pouring into me and teaching me these hard lessons. Right. And so I had them as, as role models for, for what leadership looked like as well. And so I kind of got an opportunity to take the best of both worlds and, and kind of put it together into what I believed um, was, was a solid leader. And then as the curriculum grew, I, I kind of came at it from a different realm. Like a lot of us go the academic route and we get our master's degree, then we get a PhD and we do all this research and we study, right? And, and we have the academic and the theory behind it. I kind of came at it backwards because I had 10 years of experience building leaders and culture. And mm -hmm. now I was going to school and working on a PhD and I had a master's degree in sports psych. So I was able to put labels on what I was doing, on, mm -hmm. on why this worked. I was able to say, hey, this is why this certain communication style works. This is why this team came back stronger after a big loss. Well, that's a shared trauma. That's a trust building experience, right? And so all these things kind of added in um, and so that's kind of how, how it came to be. But yeah, there's, there's no doubt, man, my childhood had a huge part in, in the way that I lead as a man. And the other thing is, is from a, a socio, you know, socioeconomic background and even just a cultural background, like I was a black man raised by a white mother in a white family in a white neighborhood, right? And so when I got to college and I was around brothers, I became a social chameleon because now it's like I can hang out with the white boys and listen to country music but I can also hang out with, with, with the frats and I can go and do that. You know what I mean? I can go and wherever I need to be, I can be there and mm -hmm. I'm comfortable there. And so I became this kind of like conduit between them, a liaison, right? Like I was able to, to bounce between groups and my roommate was the same. He was a big, he was six, four, 300 pounds, Puerto Rican, right? But he was raised in a white community as well. Mm -hmm. And so he was the same way he could bounce between. And I think that that led me to, the type of coach that I was, right? And so that's a leadership trait as well. Like we all talk about code switching and the ability to be able to, you know, speak to different people. Like that was a skill that I taught a lot of our African-American athletes at UNLV. Like we had kids that came from Compton that had never interacted with, you know, um, Caucasian leaders or anything like that. So that, that shook them. And they were like, kids, why do you talk to them differently than you talk to us? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, okay, let me teach you something. Because right now you're yeah. playing checkers. I want you to play chess, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you if you can learn this game, I'm not a threat when I step in the room with them because yeah. I can speak their language, right? And so now I can I can move in lanes that I wouldn't have had access to before. I can still be me. I can still come in with earrings, Jordans, my tattoos. I can still be me, mm -hmm. but I can move in different lanes, right? And so that, again, just another thing from my childhood that added into, you know, some of the leadership things that, that I talk about now. You two are related. Y'all are the same person. <laughs> Y'all are the same person. And, and David, what you just talked about clinically is the intersection of culture, right? And how, what, as I reflect upon what you said, I, up, up until maybe three, four months ago, I had not used cultural identity as part of my intake assessment and my initial screening process to, to guide how I was structuring the therapeutic process with my clients. And so much, a sign of the times, right? I mean, we know that it's always been there, but the cultural inequities that we're seeing in society today mm -hmm. is, is deeply impacting the mental health of society so deeply i'm like okay i've got to to incorporate this into my work so that the 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 conclusion part of my intake process is this holistic collaborative piece of five activities that I call discovering the power of your past. And I slid the cultural identity piece into that that informs me 
of how the intersection of culture is informing how my clients are thinking, feeling, functioning, and navigating life. And it has been profound to, to just understand, regard, and, and I have a diverse clientele, but to, to just really understand how that intersection of culture is informing how my couples are showing up to each other, particularly if I'm dealing with a couple that's that's um, that's interracial or biracial or whatever the appropriate terminology is. And, and looking at that, my black clients versus my white clients or my Asian clients or many clients or whatever the case may be. And it's such a huge, huge, huge element that I don't think that we have enough focus on. And I can't help but to wonder what that looks like in the athletic arena, right? Part of that intersection of cultural activity that I do with them is I have them to share what part of their culture makes them feel the most empowered and what part of their culture makes them feel the least empowered as it relates to, to race and ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, and the whole nine yards. And I kid you not, the bulk of my African-American male clients feel the least empowered being Black men. And I'm like, that's powerful. What do we do? We have to do something with that information because, you know, as you know, I've got several clients that are athletes, but I have a lot of clients that aren't. But what does that look like athletically? How do we, and particularly to you with your PhD, right? How can we incorporate the intersection of culture into the mental health work that we're doing with our athletes and with our teams and with our coaches? We've, we've got to shine a much, much brighter spotlight on the intersection of culture in the athletic arena. And then of course, we already know when you get to the professional level, the three major sports are dominated by black men and, and, and women. So we've, we've got to do something with that information. I just wanted to, to add that because I know awesome. you've got to do your dissertation and defend and be all. Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking about like, like you, you gave me so much to think about there. And I, I think it's so interesting because I've been part of, of cultures within teams where it becomes this melting pot, right? And the first one that comes to mind is, is UNLV because we had a lot of Pacific Islanders. We had a lot of African-Americans. We had, you know, kind of the, the for lack of better terms, the, the corn-fed Midwestern, you know, Caucasians, right, that came in. And, and, and so it was really this interesting dynamic um, mm -hmm. where everybody kind of melted together. And all of a sudden you heard, you know, the kids from, from Oakland and, and the Bay Area and that, using words like uso right which is which is a samoan word and so you you saw it and and it was really beautiful like we played hawaii at hawaii mm -hmm. and the families came out and so to see the samoan culture and the hawaiian culture and how they embraced our team was really cool and to see our guys tasting these foods right and doing these things so i think that there is those examples of it really being beautiful but i also to your point, I, I don't think that at times we acknowledge it enough, right? Like, I don't think that we acknowledge that, hey, like, yes, I know sports is supposed to be this even playing field, but like, we are all still different. We right. all still come with different experiences and different values, right? And for me as a coach, it was something that was never lost on me because I knew how I, and, and this is just a, an, an example, I knew I came from a single parent household. I knew I didn't react well to strong male role models because I never had one. And so if you're gonna yell in my face, to me, that's a threat, right? Because that's the, the interaction that I had with, with the male in my household, right? So to me, I'm like, all right, you're gonna yell at me. You're not gonna get what you want from me now. Now I'm, right. I'm 10 toes down right here and this is gonna be a problem, right? right? And so I think as coaches, we have to be aware of those types of, of experiences that our, our student athletes may have. And again, that's generalizing sociocultural or socioeconomic and cultural differences. But there are certain things versus like, we had a young man on a program that was uh, of Japanese and he was of, of Japanese origin and his, his interactions with male role models were extremely like, yes, sir, no, sir. What we said went, whether he thought it was right, wrong or different, because that's how he was born and raised. And so for us as coaches, you have to not be aware of that. I think one is leaving tools out of your toolbox. Right. Two, it's doing a disservice to your student athlete. 
And three, it's hurting your team. It's hurting your team because you have to have respect for that. So some of the things that we've done that I've really enjoyed, we're like allowing our student athletes to highlight their, their ethnicity and highlight their interests and highlight their background and inform and educate and teach their teammates. Like, hey, this is what this is what it's like to be from you know Hawaii, or this is what it's like to be from Chicago or wherever. You know, these are the experiences that I had. Um, I think that that's really, really powerful. But yeah, I think, you know, to your point, we do have to do a much better job of acknowledging it. And I think in athletics, a lot of times we use the blanket term of melting pot. And we mm -hmm. say that athletics is a melting pot. So we don't have to, and again, we all know how we feel about this. We don't have to see color, right? Mm -hmm. Hold on a minute. We're taking the power away from all these experiences and these values and these beautiful things that these people are bringing to our locker rooms and our buildings. Like, let's do that. But I, Without getting too polarizing, I think there has to be an acknowledgement of who's in charge and who's in positions of power in those hallways, right? Because I can't tell you how many staffs I was one of one or two black coaches. I was, I, I was, when you said, I don't want to, you know, um, you know, polarize. And I was like, I think, and you can relate to me when I say this, one of the things I've learned being biracial is that you see how polarizing one side of our genetic makeup makes a lot of things. And to your point, they're oftentimes in those leadership roles. And we've seen this shift from where like, you know, even going back 20, 30 years ago when we were playing in high school and stuff like that. I don't know, how old are you about? I never, we never asked how old, how old are you? 31, 31. Yeah, you're older than me. So yeah, we played in the same generation and everything. So you saw how like, just even how football coaches treated players from when we were playing little league in high school to how they treat them now. Like you just can't go yell at anybody's kid no more. You can't get in their face, call them everything but a blessed child of God, any of those things, because you're going to have somebody on your, on, you know, on your butt in a while. But to your point, yes, it's easy for people to say, yes, teams are a melting pot. It would also be fair to say that a this country is a melting pot and it's been a melting pot since its inception and we saw how that worked out. You know, when you when you ignore other cultures, when you don't are not mindful or appreciative of the cultural differences that we have. I always say, you know, we live in a country where our differences are demonized against us as opposed to being appreciated and just welcoming. You know, and I think that's kind of human nature when something is different, when we don't know what something is, we naturally get defensive or just, you know, our curiosity puts us on, on not at ease. Whereas when we come with, like you said, when we lead with love, when we come with, you know, vulnerability and the acceptance of wanting to learn about the other person, beautiful things can happen. But that has to start from the top, the leadership, all the way down through the players, the staff and things like that. David, we got like maybe two or three minutes left. And man, this conversation has been so amazing. And I, we got to get you back on another episode this season to finish this conversation. One of the last questions I wanted to ask you, and um, even we'll go over a couple minutes, that's fine. I wanted to ask you, you know, because, you know, what you do as a, a leadership consultant, leadership coach, um, and things like that, and your expertise as a former player, former strength coach, former coach, and things like that. If this was, a, if this was a chance for you to speak to the audience out there listening and everything, why should people invite you onto their campuses and speak on leadership and speak on all the values you have? And what message would you like the athletes and coaches to know about why they should have you and come and speak to their teams? Yeah, I, I think it comes down to, to very simply um, understanding that that as a coach, my mission was very simple. And, and I always said it when I had the opportunity to meet with recruits. Um, I would always have them look around my office and say, what do you not see that you saw in the other offices that you were in? And, and the answer was always the same. Well, championship rings. And I said, right. And it's not because I haven't won them. You see my resume. I've won, I've won rings. But to me, the relationships are always more important than the rings. So what you do see in my office are pictures of me and former student athletes. You see wedding invitations. You see, um, you know, things like that. You, I'm the guy that, that when my former students and my former student athletes have a child, I'm the one they're FaceTiming in the hospital. Hey, coach, I want you to meet my baby, right? And those moments to me are what matters. Now, why, how does that translate to me as a businessman? Because my mission is the same, right? Connection is more important than content. If I come in to your business, your school, your organization, your team, like this is not a one-time thing. I don't do canned presentations. I don't do one size fits all. I want to come in and I want to be the driving force behind your success. Connection matters more to me than content, right? And so I think that's what sets us apart. And, and 
I, I love the fact that I can proudly say as a business owner, we spend zero dollars on marketing. Zero. Hey, that's lit. Our, our, our clients, our edge family, as we call them, that's our sales force because we come in and we work with them and they want other people to work with us. Right. And so to me, that's, that's what speaks for itself, right? We have a whole sheet that, that we'll send to, you know, a prospective client if they come to us and it's just edged by the numbers and it's straight up. It tells you, listen, here's what we've done. We've worked with, you know, 35 NCAA teams. We've had seven of them make the NCAA tournament. We've had 15 conference champions. We've had all these things right all the way down. But the number that I'm most proud of, we have zero one-off clients. Once we work with somebody, they bring us back. We become a part of that family and that fabric. We go to the golf outings. We go to the fundraisers. Like, that's what makes us different. And it's because I was a coach first and a businessman second. I'm always going to be a coach first, right? So uh, for all the people out there that, are, that may want to bring us in, like, just know you're going to get the real. You're going to get authentic. Um, you know, we're going to come in. We're going to lead from the front. And, and we're going to challenge your culture and your organization to be a better version of yourselves. But we're going to give you the tools that you can, you can use today. Uh, to implement that stuff though you know that's what we're about our, our motto is built not born um i like to think that i'm a poster boy for that and i like to bring that to every organization that we work with man so you know that's kind of my, my pitch and, and who we are yes sir man well look y'all um if you want to have your uh culture transform transformed if you want to have you know come closer be able to connect have true leaders have authentic leaders um, please reach out to David Kitchen at the Edge Leadership Academy. Um, David, we really appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, Dr. Pitts, any uh, final thoughts, closing remarks or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to, I'm going to share this and I want our listeners and, and each of you, I want you to envision what I'm saying, if you will, or connect the dots to what I'm about to share within the context of life, sports, and behavioral and mental health. Wisdom is the ability to recognize difference in environments, moments, and people. Your ability to discern the divine difference in everything around you decides your success. The law of difference has never been questioned. Atheists, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, Protestants, Catholics, Gentiles, no one questions the existence of difference. It is so obvious to all of us, light versus darkness, left versus right, eyes versus ears, hands versus feet. The law of difference is all around you. Difference communicates. Difference is a warning. Difference is preparation. Difference deserves celebration, recognition. Difference is valuable. The purpose of difference is completion. Nothing God makes is whole, nothing. Everything is a part. Your eyes require a view to see. Your ears require sound to hear. Your mind requires thought to think. Nothing succeeds alone. Your difference is necessary for another's completion. There are seven differences that will decide your success. Identify your personal difference. Identify the difference in a moment. Identify the difference in those around you. Identify the difference in an opportunity. Identify the difference in an environment. Identify the difference in the season you are entering. Identify the difference in right and wrong. I want to birth such an awareness of your uniqueness within you that you are able to embrace it, nurture it, and guard it. I desire for you to be able to market it so that others can know your distinctive difference from those around you, that your difference can be treasured and ultimately rewarded. Sameness creates comfort. Difference creates your reward. Celebrate, seize, and identify your difference and enjoy great success. That is actually shared with me from one of my mentors, Dr. Mike Murdoch. 
Um, and I just wanted to share that because I think that it's so fitting, like I said, in, in life, in sports, in behavioral mental health. And then the last thing that I want to do is I just want to shout out our hometown hero, Salem, New Jersey, JT, Jonathan Taylor, Indianapolis Colts got that $42 million contract. Y'all can sure use them in Dallas. Y'all should have y'all should have gave him that money. I mean, y'all got rid of Zeke. Y'all had an extra forty nine million sitting on the side somewhere. There, there was Goodfell. no way. There was no way the Eagles were going because the Eagles wanted because it, that's home, right? There was there's no way that the Eagles were going to let Jerry Jones outbid them for him if it came to that because he wanted to leave the Colts, but now he's he's locked in for a minute. So just celebrating him, honoring him. Um, his stats are ridiculous <laughs> he's a beast he's a i hope beast. he stays healthy i definitely yeah, hope yeah, he yeah. stays healthy and that's the thing hope he stays healthy so that's it ronnie that's all i have you can close that well david once again man thank you for coming on man you are officially a part of the house talk pregame family for life man um anytime you ever want to drop back in share some wisdom um and let us know how your uh your doctor your doctoral journey is going man uh when are you anticipating on finishing <clears throat> oh man you put me on the spot here dog uh <laughs> I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping within the next year. I'm hoping within the next year. Um, well, how about this? How about, how, how about by the next time you come back on, man? It's gonna be Doctor Kitchen, man. Yes, sir. Hey, man, that's the plan. Doctor that's Kitchen. the plan. Yes, sir. Coming to a weight room in a stage near you. Hey, yeah. amen. David, and let kids, the people know. Oh, go ahead. Keep me in mind. Well, keep us both in mind for your future research endeavors too. You got. I kid you not. I'm gonna go ahead and put it out here. I know my husband is about to blow my phone up because I. I I've been trying, trying to avoid going back to school, but I think I'm going to have to do it. I think I'm going to have to do it and go get me another one because I, I need to, I really want to, to laser focus on the sports psychology piece because I think that marrying that to my LMFT and, and to my, my EDD um, is just going to give me a competitive edge with the work that I want to do in the athletic arena um, nationally. Um, Count so. it. Let's let's collaborate. Yeah. Let's make that gap. Stay right. No. So, David, let the people know how they can reach out to you, how they can find you, and uh, yeah. Yeah, brother. Uh, so I keep it simple, man. I'm at Coach D Kitch on every social media. Um, if you reach out to me on LinkedIn or Instagram. That is directly me. Uh, so I run those two myself. That's not my team. So if you really want to get in touch with just me, DM me through LinkedIn or Instagram and you will get directly to me. You can kind of circumvent the system on that one. Um, and then if you're looking for something a little bit more official, if you want to bring us in for uh, your organization or anything like that, it's edgeleadershipacademy.com. Um, and then we have our own podcast as well, the Built Not Born podcast, which comes out Wednesdays. Uh, so make sure you check that out on whatever service you listen to. Hey man, you gotta you gotta get us on the podcast, man. We love to come on here and be guests on. Let's there. have some fun. Yeah, let's have some fun, man. I'm in. Yes, I'm sir. In. Yes, sir. Well, David, once again, man, we really appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you so much for blessing us with your presence and your insight and knowledge, man. Good luck to you on all your future endeavors. Good luck on you finishing up your doctorate degree and everything. And we're looking forward to have you back on the show, man. So Thank that's you. episode 135, y'all. Catch us back here next Saturday, the 21st. We have another special guest coming on. So until then, everybody enjoy this weekend. Shout out to the Trojans. Shout out to uh, it's uh, Susquehanna, right? Susquehanna, Susquehanna, yeah, man, the Riverhawks. Yes, sir. Shout out to the Riverhawks as well on their homecoming. Um, and we'll catch y'all next weekend.